today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Feel free to subscribe and tell all your friends. Coming up on today's show, will NDP leader Jagmeet Singh get his seat, or will he be out as leader? The country is waiting to hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould, and we're still waiting. Will we hear? And an Oakville family is trying to get their father back from Egypt. Hear his story and more, all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. By-elections underway in several ridings, one of the most important being Burnaby South, uh, because NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is trying for a seat to get himself into the House of Commons. Uh, obviously, if he loses, the future not too bright for him. To talk more about all of this, David Moskrop is with us, postdoctoral fellow, Simon Fraser University, author of When Is Deliberation Democratic? And he is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. How do you think that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are feeling today? I think pretty confident. I mean, I, the underlying indicators suggest that they're going to they're going to walk away with this one. But a little nervous for the reasons you indicate. If he does happen to lose, uh, it'll be very, very difficult for him to stay on. So the stakes are high, but the probabilities of them winning are pretty good. Considering what happened with the liberal candidate and how that kind of blew up in their face and they were forced forced to go to another candidate, um, is there any reason to be concerned about this for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP? I don't think so. I mean, you know, Richard T. Lee, who replaced Karen Wang, um, has been a pretty good candidate for them. In fact, perhaps would have been the better choice out of the gate. But, you know, it's not just there is the Karen Lang thing. Uh, SNC-Lavalin's not helping the liberals right now. The NDP is sort of, you know, generally favored at riding. It's NDP-ish. By-elections are always a little bit tricky for the government because people like to air their displeasure no matter who's in power. So there's a whole bunch of factors. I mean, also, as we've mentioned, it's existential for Singh, so he's highly motivated to knock on every door five times. So all that bodes well for them. I remember when he first came to light as leader of the party, I mean, uh, people were expecting big things from this guy. He was very charismatic, you know, sharp-looking dresser, all of that stuff. Uh, and then it seemed to fall flat. Why? What happened here? Well, I mean, you know, the Singh was billed as the NDP's answer to Trudeau. You know, he was everything that Malcare yep. wasn't. He was going to be properly leftist. He was going to be charismatic. He wasn't going to have a weird smile during the debates. You know, it was going to be all of those things. Um, so the Singh campaign leaned into that. So they were part of setting the, the bar high. <laughs> um, but it was unreasonably high, in part because the NDP traditionally doesn't do particularly well. They, they do fine. They send MPs to Ottawa. They don't typically compete with the Liberals and the Conservatives to form government. So the truth is the NDP is floating sort of around where you'd expect them historically to be in the polls, but the expectations are much, much higher. So there's an adjustment period there. Uh, our, our expectations are starting to come back down to earth. Let's assume that uh, he does win and he does, uh, of course, get a seat and, and it now has representation in the House. W- what are we expecting in the next six months? Well, like every party, the NDP is going to be getting ready for the election. They're going to be nominating candidates. Um, Singh will have to prove himself in the House of Commons. Uh, one of the things Thomas Mulcair, the former NDP leader, was very good at was grilling uh, the government in the House of Commons. He was a great opposition leader. So Singh is mm. going to have to prove himself as, as not the, the leader of the official opposition, but uh, an opposition leader. Um, he has experience in Ontario in the, in the legislature, so he's not coming in completely green. But the House of Commons is a different beast. And then, of course, you'll have to control uh, and consolidate the caucus. Uh, you know, the NDP has 40 members in the House of Commons. Eleven of them aren't returning so yeah. far. <laughs> Eleven of 40. Um, that's going to be a problem. It's a lot of institutional memory and a bit of a challenge to his leadership. Uh, Thomas Mulcair, as you mentioned, uh, ha- has been quite vocal of late in regard to the party <laughs> and, and its leader. Uh, is this sour grapes or has he got some valid concerns here? I mean, I think it's both. I, I don't know him. I've, I've asked around uh, to folks who, who <laughs> were with the NDP, who are with the NDP. You get, if you were, I think you were going to sample 100 new Democrats. You have half of them say valid, half of them say sour grapes. But I think the truth is it's both. Um, he's not raising any critiques that aren't fair, but he was turfed as a leader in a fairly bitter contest. And, and it's unusual for a former leader to then go on and become a sort of a professional pundit who's doing the Monday morning quarterback thing, uh, especially after he effectively blew the 2015 election. <laughs> so 
so yeah. it's a little bit difficult. That's not to say he doesn't add value, but that value is a little bit bittersweet. What, is, what about his home riding, which is also up for grabs? Uh, the Utrecht, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that looks like it's going to go liberal. I mean, that, that could, you know, that's, again, there's plenty of liberal support in that riding. It wouldn't be surprising if it did. Um, you know, it's not unfathomable that it goes orange, but it'll probably go red, and, and that wouldn't be a, a major disruption of, you know, historical patterns. Um, it actually looks like each party is going to come away, each of the three major parties is going to come away with one seat, um, with the Tories picking up the Ontario riding, which means that tomorrow everyone will be declaring victory <laughs> for themselves and defeat hmm. for the other parties. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. Um, yeah. <laughs> is there any chance of another orange wave happening soon? Like, you, you know, you were talking about the days of Thomas Mulcair, and he was a fabulous opposition leader. Um, you know, but once once push came to shove, it just didn't happen. Uh, your thoughts on, on what went wrong there? Well, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that the NDP got outflanked on the left by the Liberals, who have a bit of a history of running to the left during elections and governing sort of in the center-center-right a little bit. Uh, there was a lot of that. You know, for instance, the Liberals said they'd run deficits, and the NDP uh, uh, didn't. Uh, the NDP talked a little bit too much about things like the Senate, which nobody really cares about when it comes to voting. Um, the Liberals were talking about the middle class and, and jobs, which is, plays well for them. So that was probably a pretty big factor. Uh, the other factors that, that supported the NDP rising in the first place was people you know, in 2005, 2006, were sick of the Liberals, um, and then they turfed them. And then the Liberals spent, you know, almost 10 years in disarray with a series of weak leaders and organizational problems, um, whereas the, and so the NDP became the beneficiary of that. That's not true anymore. I mean, the Liberals have their affairs back in order. The Tories, um, you know, still on a bit of a timeout, but their support's ticking back up. Uh, the NDP is sort of back to their traditional third-party status. So, uh, providing uh, Jagmeet Singh is elected tonight, um, can he make up for lost ground here? Is there much of an impact he can make in the next six months? Well, it will depend a little bit, I think, on what happens with with SNC Lavalin. Um, you know, if that if that blows up and it stays in the news, it's probably going to hurt the Liberals. But it's definitely an uphill battle for the NDP. Uh, they have a lot of value to add in Ottawa. They have a lot of value to add in the country. Um, but it's going to be tricky for them to do that. Uh, and it's going to take time. And given the state of the party, not just in terms of organization, but also finances, they're not in great shape when it comes to money. Um, it's going to take, they're going to basically try to hold on to what they've got. So if I'm seeing right now, my goal is to keep 40 seats in the House of Commons, not to start dreaming about 100. Is this party divided? Uh, do they all seem to see, do they all seem to be on the right page when it comes to their leader? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why don't you think so? Well, the left splits. You know, the, the left is sort of historically good at, at eating its own, for one, yeah. sort of what, what happens. And I say that as someone who comes from the left tradition, it's really just what happens. Uh, the other issue is that expectations sort of change. So in the past, you would never imagine the NDP turfing Alexa McDonough or Audrey McLaughlin uh, or Jack Layton after one bad election or, or a rocky year. But, you know, something like between 2015 and 2019, their expectations changed, or, or in fact, before that, their ex- ex- uh, expectations started to change, so that's that's part of it. Um, I think that'll take them a little while to, to come back down from that. Um, and the other, I think, is a deeper divide of whether or not you want a sort of center-ish NDP that looks a little bit like the Liberals, but to the left, or whether you want them to run the full guns left campaign of Bernie Sanders or AOC or Jeremy Corbyn, right? So there is a sort of philosophical debate going on there as well as a, as a strategic debate. And Singh, I think, represents a little bit more of, of the leftist version rather than the centrist version of that. Because keep in mind, Leighton and Mulcair sort of pulled the party to the center. That's yeah, very much part so. of what helped them win more, too. Is that but the key? Is they, that the only way these guys are going to win, is, is, is if you do pull to the, to the center in some way? Or, or can Singh make a go of it, especially with the, the liberals every so often nipping to the left and eating lunch? Well, that's it. I mean, I think for a lot of folks, they say, well, if I want a center-leftish party, I'll just vote for the liberals and get half of that half the time, you know, and that's good enough. At least they have a chance of forming government. I don't like the Tories. Like, that'll be the, the strategic calculus. Right. Uh, I think the NDP, you know, they look, there's, there's a conversation in the party, I think, about what they want to be in Canada and what their future is. I think their value is in running a proper left campaign and being a proper left party rather than being sort of a pale imitation of the Liberals. But, you know, that's their business. 
Uh, what about the Green Party? Many have said or thought and pondered that uh, the Green is going to start eating away at what, what once the NDP had, although, you know, may, may agree on environmental issues, certainly different uh, philosophically when it comes to, to the politics. Do you think that the Green Party has a chance of, of gaining at the NDP's expense? Yeah, I mean, the, the Greens are an interesting party because they sort of eschew the, the typical left-right center um, you know, organizational <laughs> chart, right? They they kind of do a sort of pro-environment, but also technocratic politics. And, and some of them actually look like red Tories, right? Um, so they cut across the political spectrum. Yeah. Uh, one of the things they do well, and they, they, they were the beneficiaries of this, certainly in British Columbia, um, and a little bit in Ontario with Mike Schreiner was um, they play it honest and they don't um, they don't have the baggage of other parties. So in BC, the fact that the Greens were seen as a sort of clean alternative um, to the NDP and the Liberals helped them a lot, helped them elect three members instead of one and doubled their support from eight to sixteen percent back in twenty seventeen. Um, now we see Mike Schreiner in Ontario. We see them doing well in the polls and some in Atlantic you know, Canada. Uh, Elizabeth May is generally well respected, so they play the sort of the honest broker role. If there are enough, uh, enough disaffected voters, you might see a push for that. Um, and as they sort of gain momentum across the country, they become a more viable option. So, I'd, I'd, And plus, Elizabeth May will be in the debates, uh, given that we have a new debate commission, and she's quite good at that. So I, I think the election will be fairly kind to the Greens this time around. Uh, are, are environmental issues enough to make voters change perhaps their political ideology? Because as you well, mentioned, there certainly are there certainly is some conservative elements to this party. Yeah, and and I think you know environment issues environmental issues are on the agenda more than they ever have been in, in the history of our democracy. They're, they're sort of front of mind. Um, people are connecting those issues to other issues like social issues to economic issues as well. So they're not just niche save the whales anymore. It's also about protecting industry and protecting our way of life and protecting our health. So. You know, I think those issues will continue to become um, increasingly mainstream and in front of mind. But I still think that most voters are voting on, you know, roughly what we call pocketbook issues, economy issues. How's my job? How's my salary? Can my kid go to school? Can I make it through the day? That's sort of, and I think we'll be there for the foreseeable future because that's just sort of how we are as human beings, what we think about. Um, so, you know, that's certainly going to favor the liberals, I think, too. All right. Obviously, if Jagmeet Singh doesn't fare well, uh, that's probably the end of, of him. But uh, as you mentioned, it, it pretty much looks like it, it, it is his to lose, that he will, in fact, be victorious tonight. As they move into the next election, what is his personal uh, challenge? What's his, personally his biggest challenge moving into the next election? It's going to be getting noticed. Um, that's an old NDP challenge, right? If you've got a close race between the Liberals and the Conservatives, who, which, which this is, in 2019, and those two parties typically form government, um, you're going to have to find a way to get on the radar and make your case of why someone should support you, especially if they're a liberal who's worried about the Tories forming government, right? I mean, we're strategic voters in this country. Plenty of us make that calculation all the time and then vote liberal holding our noses, right? Um, And then, of course, there's going to be some folks who are just sort of floating around and can't make up their mind. The end of you will have to find a value proposition that isn't just like we're, we're like the liberals, but not as quote-unquote corrupt. That's not going to do it either, I don't think. It's not exactly an inspirational message to rally 38% of the country, which is what you'd need to, to form government, probably, give or take. So it'll be to find a way to, to get on the radar, and um, maybe it is through hammering up uh, SNC-Lavalin. That might be their best hope, but I actually think it's probably more like running a sort of Bernie Sanders-ish campaign and capturing the, those folks who want something very, very different in this country. All right, David, last question. Um, the the SNC-Lavalin case, how much of an issue do you think this will be come election time? I, I don't know. You know, if it's in the press still, if there's an inquiry going on, for instance, or if it's been escalated to the level of a police investigation, and there's no indication right now that that's going to happen at all, um, then, then it will be, I think, a big deal. But I, I think it's more likely that by then it's just sort of petered out because it's, it's possible that there's no there there, right? We're collecting the information now, but there's, there's no guarantee that there's actually anything there to sustain this. And until there's good evidence that there is, um, I don't think most people are really going to care in the sense that, that they're going to change their vote. I, I can't think of many Canadians who are watching this, following closely and saying, well, this is the thing that's going to make me flip my, my vote. Uh, I think that's unlikely. Really quickly, remember the sponsorship scandal 15 mm, years ago? Yeah. Sunk the Liberals? 
that was in the news for years, and people were sick of the liberals who'd been in power over a decade already by then. So that's this isn't that yet. David Moscrop has been with us, postdoctoral fellow, Simon Fraser University, author of When Is Deliberation Democratic? David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University. Lots to talk about today, whether it's in regard to the SNC-Lavalin case and uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, by-elections that are going on uh, across the country today, and uh, uh, hopefully for the NDP, the leadership of their party uh, gets a seat, Jagmeet Singh, and ends up uh, in the House today. Uh, right to uh, NDP MPP Monique Taylor locally being booted out of the legislature for the day due to accusing the Ontario government of lying to parents uh, to parents of children with autism. To throw it all around, Peter Graff is with us, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. Peter, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So what does it take to get thrown out of the ledge? Well, pretty much to uh, say that the other side is lying. So, so how do you? That's a, that's a pretty low bar, really. So, so how do you position what you're saying? But you can't call people names. You can't come right out and said you are lying. Well, I mean, I guess you've got to lead the horse to water. Point out how they said one thing on one day, but the facts prove otherwise, and ask them about those facts. But uh, yeah, you can't actually, you know, get to the point of uh, coming right out and saying that someone has lied. You could ask if they'd perhaps misled the legislature or misspoken or something, I guess. But uh, it's a pretty uh, fine line in terms of those rules. Uh, What does this say about the NDP MPP? Is this good? Is this good for her to get this onto the the front burner again? Uh, What does it say? Well, I mean, it's theater. I mean, opposition parties uh, periodically uh, have people get uh, kicked out, in part because they feel that something really outrageous is happening and they want the public to pay attention. And they hope that, you know, the public will be more upset about the outrageous thing than about people, you know, misbehaving and getting kicked out. And so, I mean, on this this autism file, obviously the government has faced now about two weeks of really bad news where, you know, it seems like they maybe were saying things to organizations that were almost threatening them, that they maybe were playing around with wait lists and so forth. And so... uh, uh, I think the NDP in uh, Queen's Park sees a very well-organized uh, community of parents of, uh, of children with autism who are uh, outraged, uh, angry, uh, not going to be uh, shut up or put off, and so see this as maybe as a good way of trying to frame what the government is up to leading up to the uh, spring budget. How big an issue is this for the PCs? Is this, is this something they're going to have to walk back on? Uh, well... I mean, it's it's hard to say. They seem to have not wanted to go back an inch. They've, you know, even said some things that have enraged uh, you yeah. know, the, the community further. Uh, you know, a number of things which seem uh, really insensitive <laughs> in many ways mm-hmm. as, a, as an outsider. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to see them really uh, moving back on it in a big way. I think they tried to put a cap on the expense related to, uh, you know, the education uh, and treatment and, you know, uh, different forms of... Uh, uh, therapy and uh, interventions. Um, yeah, I guess but, the whole I guess the whole idea behind it is to spread the money to more people. However, uh, more expensive care uh, obviously is going to be denied. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we saw under the previous uh, Liberal government not a lot of happiness in the, in the community either with the idea that the the money wasn't being spent. I mean, the Conservatives here yeah, are saying, "Well, we'll spread it around," but obviously, spreading it around doesn't make much sense if mm. the people who need a whole lot more, uh, you know, don't get enough, and so. Uh, you know, but uh, compared to spending more money, this is their solution. And, and clearly, for a community that had seemed to have received reassurances from the Conservatives that they were going to do more and differently, or at least, uh, you know, going to the last election, number of members of the uh, of that community were uh, pretty favorable to the Conservatives as a, a more attentive government. Uh, this response is obviously a big shock to them. Uh, getting news now that the uh, PC Ontario PCs uh, going to announce sweeping health care reform on Tuesday. Uh, is this a, dra- a distraction from this file, or are all under the same umbrella, and will they have to face the fire either way? Um, well, I mean, I think I mean you don't you don't announce sweeping health care reform. Uh, you might announce something else to try and keep people's eyes off helping sweeping health care reform. Um, but um, no, I think it's uh, it's something that the, the conservatives want to do. They want to change the way the health system is organized, probably open it up to various forms of uh, 
Well, privatization or public-private partnerships, uh, you know, and in that context, then um, it will be probably push the autism file off the front burner uh, because it, clearly it's something that's going to affect many more Ontarians in terms of their access to health care and, and the manner in which their health care system looks. All right, uh, three by-elections across the country today, uh, one in York, uh, one out in Quebec, Thomas Mulcair's old riding, and then the one a lot of people are paying attention to, Burnaby South, which is where Jagmeet Singh is trying to get a seat so he can uh, officially lead his party from inside the House. Any reason to be concerned about this, considering, um, you know, the Liberals sort of fumble uh, earlier on in the campaign with this, with this riding? Is there any reason to think that he may lose this? Um, no, not really. Uh, I mean, certainly the Liberals actually now have a stronger candidate, I think, than, than at the beginning of the campaign. But I thought that, too. It's certainly more experience. Yeah, and has a track record, although, I mean, at the moment, the track record of the B.C. Liberals is a bit under question with some of the, the money laundering uh, allegations and so yeah. on that have been going on. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, a stronger candidate, but... Nevertheless, I think Burnaby is a, a riding where uh, the NDP has had success uh, over many years. I mean, stretching back to before Sven Robinson holding at least part of that seat, uh, you know, it's been redistributed a few times since then, but, you know, going back in the 1970s. So, uh, you know, for uh, for Mr. Singh to lose that seat would be, uh, I mean, a real blow in terms of his capacity, precisely because it's one that he should be able to win. Well, maybe not easily. I mean, it was a close race in the last uh, federal election, but... On most days, it should be a fairly straightforward NDP seat. Did you think once he was announced as leader that he would be doing better by now than what he has? Are you surprised he hasn't performed better? Yeah, I, I've been a bit surprised on that on that front. Uh, I mean, I you know there seems to be a lack of uh, a concerted strategy within the NDP in terms of what are the issues they're going to focus on and how are they going to build a, a campaign around them that can link what's happening in the House with what he was able to do as someone who wasn't in the House. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a real difficulty, it seemed, you know, getting a clear and coherent message around that. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, and particularly in a time when you see a certain polarization of politics and you see a liberal uh, government, which, you know, disappointed uh, maybe a more, you know, the more left-wing uh, elements of its base with its decisions and electoral reform, uh, pipeline politics and so forth. You'd have seen a much bigger opening, you think, for uh, the NDP to really position itself. So is that due to the leader or the party just not having a clear ground, a clear mandate? Uh, well, I mean, the answer of both isn't, you know, that exciting. But uh, yeah. I, I think certainly in his early days as leader, uh, Singh didn't choose the right people to put around him in terms of finding a way to have a, a good and open relationship with the caucus. He probably should have spent a bit more time, you know, having run an outsider campaign and, and successfully won the leadership on the first ballot. You can understand why he might feel he could, you know, figure out how to do things by himself, but probably didn't spend enough time listening to some of the old guard and, and building those linkages. But the other part is that when you're the, the third party in Parliament, you're never really on the front page, and so it is difficult to find a way uh, to connect with Canadians. I mean, I think people might have been saying the same thing about Jack Layton any time between when he won the leadership in 2003 and about, well, the second week of the federal campaign in 2011. You know, why wasn't he connecting? Why wasn't he making greater inroads? I mean, I think it's hard for a third-party leader. So, uh, obviously, the NDP has had more success when with leaders like Jack Layton or, or, or Thomas Mulcair trying to pull them closer to the centre. Is that where their success is, or... Are, 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 would they be more successful if they just became a true real left party, like a Bernie Sanders sort of thing? Uh, well, I kind of doubt that there's that much space, especially within our electoral system, to <coughs> just uh, you know run greatly to the left. Uh, I mean, I think it's more finding a way of... I mean, I think Leighton's success was more in neutralizing some of the historic weaknesses of the NDP in terms of being seen as like not good with public finances or the friend of the criminal or something like that, and, you know, trying to make stances around issues of crime and public money uh, that gave the NDP greater credibility, which then allowed him to, you know, push and make a distinctions with, with the Liberals. And so I think Singh has a sort of similar challenge at the moment, and maybe his difficulty is that he has a harder time coming up with a message that isn't uh, Justin Trudeau's. Uh, you know, it is very much a to trying to, to have this idea of a better Canada, or, you know, that sounds very 2015 you know, has he has he been able to find a way to to react to a world that's changed since Trump, and where maybe there's a bit more opening for you know making some pretty 
uh, you know, pretty clear uh, electoral claims. I mean, I think uh, Andrew Horvath had some success in the last provincial election by coming out quite clearly on a certain number of questions around, uh, you know, child care and uh, pharmacare, dental care. Um, we haven't really seen from the, the NDP federally. Uh, what about the SNC-Lavalin case? How much of an issue do you think this will be in the next election? Is this a key for Jagmeet Singh to, to, to grab onto? Uh, I don't think it's going to be a huge thing in the next election. I mean, there's a really important principle about uh, the interference uh, with the, in, the, in the work of the Attorney General, which raises questions about our equality before the law, but I think most Canadians aren't really, you know, that's, it's kind of arcane. So I don't think we're going to punish a government for having contravened that, uh, that constitutional convention. I mean, we're more likely to be talking about health care, for instance, if uh, you know we see the Ontario government push uh, pretty strongly on reform, and presumably that gives an easy target for Justin Trudeau to run against in Ontario. Uh, so we may be more likely to see issues such as that at the centre of our campaign than the SNC-Lavalin. That's provided Trudeau can get out of this next week. Uh, do the NDP, uh, are, are, are they in fear of losing what they have to even other parties such as the Green Party? Even though uh, environmentally they may be close, but certainly politically it would be two totally different political uh, ideologies on many issues. Uh, do they have fear of losing you know, you know, that th- sort of third party status to someone else? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure they have a lot of fear of the Green Party replacing them. I think their fear is more that, you know, at uh, 17% in the polls or 15% at the polls where they are at the moment, you're not going to do very well under an electoral system. Uh, and so you need to try and federate as many votes as you can. So I think the the fear is less that the Greens are going to replace them, but that if the Greens run a good campaign and take, you know, 5 or 7% of the vote, that may be the 5 or 7% they needed to, to elect a better number of, of MPs. So... I think that's the greater fear for the NDP at the moment in terms of the Greens. You know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I mean, we could have had this discussion uh, a couple of years ago or even several years ago. It, it seems that there's nothing new here for the NDP. They're really the, the only difference between this campaign and others is that in, in the past there's been, uh, you know, little uh, peaks of, a, of an orange wave here and there that seem to, to hold momentum for a while. But really, there's nothing new. It's the same old problems here. Yeah, I mean, some of them are structural. I mean, with our electoral system and being the third party, uh, I mean, in some ways it was similar to what the Liberals faced under Trudeau between 2011 and 2015. They found their way out of the bag, but uh, the, the NDP seems to have a harder time uh, dealing with with that, uh, you know, that limitation of the electoral system. I mean, I think the other thing here, too, is, I mean, do they have a moment where they could be a bit bolder? Uh, I mean, certainly the 50 people who showed up on Parliament Hill as part of the Yellow Vest demonstration maybe means that there isn't as much outrage about cost of living issues in this country as people might let on. But still, you'd think there's a space there where, uh, uh, you you know, uh, Singh could uh, harness a different set of ideas that we're seeing out of Trudeau, really focusing on people's difficulty of of making things, making ends meet, uh, and, uh, you know, the lack of things like, say, pharmacare that might make it a bit easier for some families. So that kind of form of of, uh, putting together the the questions facing Canadians we haven't seen from the NDP in a few years. Uh, If we are, or if if we are where we are with the NDP, um, you know, they got some money issues, uh, waiting for their leader to, to finally secure a seat in the House, um, not real clear of, of what all of their issues are or if they are kitchen table issues that, that the public is interested in. Is there any reason to believe that they'll pull a rabbit out of the hat somewhere between now and the election? Is there something that can just turn this whole thing around? Or is there any reason to believe the numbers will stay where they are right through the election? Well, I mean, I think we're going to see an election where Trudeau is going to make the case that even though, uh, you know, maybe the ways were less sunny than they seemed in 2015, uh, they'll be much worse under Andrew Scheer. So, you know, anyone uh, to the left of the Conservatives has to vote Liberal. And so, I mean, the rabbit that the NDP have to pull out of the hat uh, is to make the case that, you know, that they are relevant and that it would be worth voting for them over the Liberals. And so I think that's going to be the challenge for them uh, going into the campaign if they want to, to sustain themselves. I mean, the difference, uh, I would say, uh, at the moment is despite having been nowhere in Canadian politics for about two and a half years and, and really outside of that narrative, they're still at 15 to 17 percent, which, you know, if you look at where the NDP were polling in the early weeks of the 2011 campaign with their big breakthrough, they were at like 11 to 13 percent. They got pushed down that low. So in a way, they're, they're starting from a higher mm-hmm. base than you'd expect, given their absence from 
the political narrative. And so if they begin doing some things right, uh, maybe they have more upside potential than we think. Uh, as we head into this week, uh, obviously last week, uh, just a, a pretty tumultuous time in Ottawa with the NCN, uh, SNC-Lavalin case and, and the Jody Wilbo, uh, Wilson-Raybould cases. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're talking about her possibly uh, speaking up on this. Uh, some have said that the government has made its play. The clerk to the Privy Council said his point, and you know, then a bunch of others who were under the wing said, "Yeah, look at there. That, I agree with that sort of thing." Uh, do, do they just hope the Liberals just hope this all kind of disappears? Will it? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I guess it will really depend with uh, you know what uh, Wilson Raybould has to say. I mean, if she comes out and says that ultimately uh, the Prime Minister and people around the Prime Minister. Uh, tried to direct her in her role as the Attorney General in terms of a criminal prosecution. Um, well, I mean, that is a pretty serious uh, offence to a core uh, constitutional convention that the Attorney General should not be pressured in that manner. So say, and, and you know, like the Privy Council clerk said that there had been pressure applied. It seems now we're debating on what the definition of pressure really is. Yeah, so in a way, you know, what happens when the, a constitutional convention is broken uh, I mean, those conventions are protected by uh, politics. And so ultimately, if Canadians think that this is a grave affront, um, they're going to make it known. And, uh, you know, the government will have to make some sort of reaction to it. The prime minister, you know, would have to, well, wouldn't have to, but, you know, could resign. I suspect what the, the government is going to say is that Canadians have misunderstood this principle. In fact, it's not, you no, know, you shouldn't be any pressure, but just undue pressure, and their pressure wasn't undue. And uh, they'll let Canadians uh, forget about it and... Uh, hopefully get off the hook. But again, if Canadians really got up in arms and say this is an affront to our constitutional way of doing things, you know, then there might be a room to see some kind of form of push for a resignation or some sort of, uh, you know, severe response on the part of the government. It appears that, you know, even from what the clerk of the Privy Council said, that there was pressure applied, although initially it was reported that that was all false. And now at least there's admission that there is some pressure. So she comes out tomorrow, the next day, and says, yeah, there was pressure. Both have agreed there's pressure. (laughs) Then then what? I mean, it's just basically a he said, she said on, on how much is too much. Uh, yeah, although, I mean, you know, again, the, the Constitutional Convention is that there should be none. That the, that the And this has already been decided, really. And, you know, the Attorney General has a right to go and speak to these other people and get their advice, but in no means should they uh, be putting pressure on that decision. Um, but, you know, ultimately, again, uh, you know, do, do Canadians care enough for that principle, which is, you know, fundamental to ensure that uh, those who are in power, the you know, the, the cabinet, the government of the day, don't use that position to arbitrarily uh, prosecute uh, their enemies or to let their friends off the hook. I mean, so it's a really important principle, but, you know, do Canadians really care enough about something that arcane in this case uh, to, you know, insist on their prime minister, say, resigning if he was to have crossed that line? Uh, you know, which is a fundamental one about uh, our equality before the law. Peter Graff has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, a situation not uncommon to... uh, in the sense that uh, people are being detained, uh, than the uh, Neil Bantelman story that we've been following for, man, it's been a couple of years now. I believe uh, Guy Neil's brother's been on uh, several times talking about his scenario. Uh, now we have something very similar, an Ontario woman, Oakville, Ontario woman, fighting to have the government contact Egypt and demand the release of her father who was thrown into a Cairo prison without explanation. To talk about all of this, Amal Abbas, Albaz is with us, daughter of Yasser Albaz, who is in a Cairo prison and is on the line now. Amal, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So what happened? How did this all start? My father was just uh, supposed to board a flight last Monday uh, to come back to uh, Canada um, after having spent some time there for business. Uh, But unfortunately, as soon as he arrived at the airport after he checked in his bags, uh, when he reached passport control, his passport was confiscated. And um, that was the last we've ever heard from him. He messaged us around 10 p.m., letting us know that he loves us. And uh, that was the last direct messaging we had with him. We do have a message that he was apparently able to send a friend a message letting 
letting us know, uh, you know, that he was taken by state security. And that's honestly the last we've heard from him. Uh, we have no other information, uh, you know, uh, then we had no information, but we had just found out on Saturday that my father appeared at a state security prosecutor's office. Uh, during that time, that whole week practically, uh, the Egyptian authorities were denying detaining him. They, mm. Whenever we, you know, the Canadian uh, government, the embassy tried to reach them, they said, oh, no, we don't know anything about this. But just on Saturday, uh, we found out that after, uh, you know, he was questioned uh, at the state sec- uh, prosecutor's office, uh, he was taken to Torah prison in Egypt, which is a notorious prison uh, for human rights violations. So we are very, very concerned for his safety. And how did you find out this information if they were contradicting that earlier? Uh, so the uh, we through the embassy. So we, uh, you know, they, they told us we should hire a lawyer there. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. We hired a lawyer in Egypt uh, who was allowed to attend this uh, questioning at the prosecutor's office. Uh, and that's how we knew this information. So how long again has it been since you actually heard from him? So tonight at 10 p.m., it'll be exactly one week. One week. Uh, and how long was he there? He was there in Egypt um, since December on business. Um, and, you know, what's so strange about all this is that you know, we've been in Canada for two decades. We go back and forth all the time with absolutely no concern. Mm-hmm. We were just there uh, this summer for my sister's engagement, actually. Um, and, you know, there's there's never been an issue with anything. So this is, uh, you know, even, even our lawyer, you know, he, he's completely in shock by all this. He has no idea why this is happening. This is clearly a huge mistake. Uh, this is a huge misunderstanding. Um, and it's very unclear why they're holding him. Uh, how long had he been there this time? He was there for about two months, roughly. And uh, can you tell us what his business is there? So he's an engineer by profession. He owns uh, an engineering firm here in Oakville. So we just, he just had a client there uh, in Egypt, and he was supposed to come back on uh, Monday. And, uh, you know, he didn't come. And ironically, it was family day, right? That was the day mm. we were expecting him. We got the house prepared. My, my son kept asking about his grandfather, and, uh, you know, we, we, he disappeared. Mm. Um. Uh, is he well known in Egypt for the business that he does there and conducts there? Not necessarily. It was just a client. Uh, you know, my dad travels all over for his, his business, not particularly Egypt. Uh, you know, his his business is based here in, in Oakville, so most of his business is in Canada. But he does, you know, travel often, so that is not unusual at all. Um, you know, what I think just the most important thing is, is that, you know, we need to get my father on a plane today and come home because... You know, I can't imagine him spending another night in, in this, uh, this horrible prison that's known for, you know, detaining, holding, uh, you know, thousands of prisoners without any charge. And I think that's the biggest issue. Um, and I definitely appreciate, you know, everything, you know, the Canadian embassy has been doing there. But but we definitely need more, right? I'm not hearing any signals um, of urgency or escalation to the minister or higher. And that's, uh, you know, only the minister can bring him home and, and, you know, get him out of prison. So your father and your family, for that matter, have been traveling to and fro from Egypt uh, since you've been here a, a couple of decades with no problems whatsoever? Exactly. Yes. It, it's mind-boggling to everyone why this time there is an issue, you know. Uh, my father is, uh, you know, very, very well respected here in the community, in all of the GTA, really. Um, you know, he's very well known for his charity work and community work. He's a great father, grandfather to two, son- uh, two grandsons. Uh, you know, we have no idea what this could be. And if it was just a similarity in names, well, I mean, you could have just swiped the passport and you know it's not that person, right? But clearly there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, some sort of misunderstanding. We have no idea what's going on. Uh, do you think that could be the issue, that there's some sort of ID mix-up here? You know, you talked about similar names. Is, is that possible? I mean, you know, you can hear that at the airport, but again, if, if you just uh, if they just check your ID and they make sure you're not that person, you know, it's over. You don't disappear for a week, and then you're at the prosecutor's office, you know, and so it's, it's, it's very fishy. It's very strange, and of course, this is this is very common in Egypt. It's been known for arbitrary arrest and detention uh, since the coup in 2013. So we are not completely shocked by Egypt's, you know, uh, um, actions, but we are completely shocked by, uh, you know, why they're doing this to my father and that the Canadian government isn't bringing him back home. Have you ever been fearful traveling in and out of the country before? 
Never. No, no, no. We have family there. You know, we mm-hmm. go there for vacation, usually in the summer. You know, we go to the beaches, you yeah. know, some resorts, you know. It's, it's, within Egypt, it's, it's pretty stable. Uh, you'd say, like, you know, people are living their lives as normally as possible, but it's just issues like this that come up, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we need to resolve it as soon as we can. You said that he has an engineering business. Can you tell us what types of industries he does business with? I'm just looking for, for red flags here. Oh, no, for me, I mean, it's like, you know, you ask me what my husband does, I tell you also, he's an engineer, that's right. all I know. But for my father, I know he does stuff with, like, um, automation design and, and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's a mix between mechanical and electrical engineering. So is he involved in any sort of sensitive projects that would warrant this kind of attention? Nope, not at all. Um, not at all. And he has no political affiliations whatsoever. He's not politically active. I mean, that's usually the flag, you know, that people often, you know, right. say. But, but, of course, he has, he has none of that. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of left us all very, very confused and very concerned for his safety. Uh, you know, we can't sleep, we can't eat. We can, uh, I've never been more stressed in my life. And then when I think of that, I imagine how he must be feeling, right? Yeah. So mm. I just, you know, we continue to pray for him and we thank our community so much for, you know, all that they've done. And, you know, we, we need we need the minister of Foreign Affairs and a Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to pick up the phone and use their diplomatic relations with Egypt and feel the urgency, you know, and, and bring back my father. Uh, he is a Canadian citizen, obviously, is he? Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does the government say about all of this? So, you know, they definitely have been helpful on the ground in trying to locate him. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I, like, this is, for me, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling because... On one hand, I'm very appreciative of everything that's happening, uh, you know, that, you know, what they're doing and trying to see him. Uh, and I made it clear to them that I would like them to make it, try to visit him in prison specifically, uh, you know, to see his conditions there. Um, you know, this is, this is obviously very scary for me because while I want the Canadians to see my father, this is kind of the minimum responsibility, right? Um, again, I'm not hearing any signals of urgency or escalation to the minister or higher, so I am a little, you know, disappointed in that. But I am also grateful of the fact that, you know, on the ground there, they are, you know, doing their best to locate him. But obviously locating him isn't enough. We have to bring him home. Uh, so he is he or he is receiving consular services of some sort there? I mean, now at least they know where he is. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, so they know where he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that they were able to attend the um, uh, the questioning with him, but they were not allowed to speak with him whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, which again is, is something that's uh, we, you know we were told is rare in Egypt. Usually, the um, the embassy is there is not allowed to attend any of this. So clearly, Canadian intervention does help, right? And it, and it gave him some of these rights. So we're hoping if we push for more, you know, uh, we can actually bring him home as soon as we can. And um, have they said anything about charges against him or why they're doing this? There have been absolutely no charges laid on my father. Uh, Our lawyer made that very clear. Uh, And he is completely shocked as to why this is happening. And all we know is that there's going to be further questioning tomorrow where uh, he'll be, you know, taken from the prison back to the prosecutor's office probably. Um, But, uh, you know, this is... This is all very concerning. Even during that week, we had we had no idea where he was being detained, right? We had no idea where he was or what his condition was like until we found out on Saturday that, you know, he appeared at the uh, prosecutor's office. Is that common? Uh, does that happen? I mean, usually if someone is detained, you at least know where they are, their whereabouts, that sort of thing. So actually in Egypt, it's very common that if someone goes missing, you kind of Sometimes for weeks, you even don't know where they are in months, and yeah. some people never find out what happens to their loved ones, right? But again, I think because we, we got on this right away, we contacted the emergency line of consular affairs. Um, you know, they reacted very quickly, and they picked up the phone and called the minister, uh, the ministry in Egypt. But again, Egypt was denying, you know, holding my father. Um, but clearly, Canadian intervention helps. Right. And I think that's the biggest key. We need to, you know, move as quickly as we can. And I was really hoping during this window where he was there from Saturday until tomorrow, right. at least into our prison, to, to, to do something about it, because Egypt is also notorious for fabricated charges. Right. And and once this gets into the legal system, it must be, uh, you know, it, it will be definitely harder for the Canadian government to intervene. So right now is key. Right. We, we need that phone to be picked up by the ministers. Uh, and he was flagged trying to board the plane. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yeah, just that passport control after all the bags went through and everything, right. they, they didn't let him go through. Um, what about the relationship between our two countries? 
In what way, sorry? How is that helping or hindering? What's the relationship? You said, uh, you know, Egypt isn't even, uh, has been reluctant to provide information of charges or even where he's been. Uh, What's the relation like between the two countries when it comes to issues like this? Um, I'm not honestly an expert on this, so I can't, you know, comment on, you know, their political relationships in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I, but I do know from Canadian cases in the past where Canadians were detained. Um, you know, it was only with with uh, with Canadian, you know, high level intervention. You know, and um, when I say high level, I mean the ministers. Only with that intervention were they able to come home. And so that's that's uh, that's for me. That's all I know about that. You said that this happens there uh, in this country, but you haven't been fearful of traveling uh, to and fro before. How come? Because we've never had any issue, right? Um, And and because, you know... uh we have, you know, again, as I said, no political affiliation or anything like that. And we have family there, right? So, and and so we we often go to visit. It's never been an issue. Uh, we have no idea why it happened this time. Um, again, people in Egypt are living their lives very normally. Uh, but of course, you know, this, this is still an issue that happens in Egypt. Um, we'd never thought that, you know, my father would be targeted. Uh, can the family that you have there help at all? They have been trying, obviously, since they want to locate him. You'd think that, you know, since they're there, they'd be able to. But, sure. I mean, if the ministry said no to the, to Canada, you know, are they really going to say yes to my family? And, of course, my family had no luck. So do they have any more uh, of an advantage because they are there over your family that's here? Um, I I honestly do not think so. Um, I think, you know, our, our, our biggest hope right now is the Canadian government, and we are here in Canada trying to bring back this Canadian citizen you know, back home safely to us. So I think we have more power here. And uh, I, I guess that every day this drags on concerns you more. Oh, uh, are, are there timelines here where, uh, you know, out by out by this time, uh, if this happens, uh, you know, and then as opposed to if it gets, uh, if he gets stuck in the wheels of justice there, how long this could be? I don't know. I mean, you know, we've seen in previous cases it can definitely take months before, you know, uh, if, if it gets into the legal system, it can take months, right? And and that's, oh, I cannot even imagine, you know, something like that happening to my father. Like, he's been there a week already, and it's been, uh, you know, the most stressful time of our lives. So yeah. um, uh, the only timeline I know, the only thing we know, like, I'm just like you asking questions. I have no idea why this is happening. The only thing I know is that he's going to have further questioning tomorrow, and uh, we're waiting for an update then. How is your family here handling this? It must be terrible. Oh, my God. It is. Uh, I, I can't even find the words to describe what we're feeling. Um, the only way we've been able to cope is honestly through the support of our community. Um, you know, they've bringing food over and, uh, you know, visiting and making sure that we're okay. Honestly, if it wasn't for that, we'd, we'd uh, I don't know what state, you know, we'd be in. Um, you know, my father is very well known for his community work and charity work, and I think that definitely speaks to his character, right? All these, uh, you know, the, the way that the community stepped up. We've sent over you know, over 2,000 emails to different MPs and the ministers. So they, they clearly should know what's going on, right? We just, we just see no action. Yeah, it's certainly getting uh, lots of publicity now. Uh, how is the family reacting over there? Um, would they be eager to help or are they cautious for their own safety if they get too involved? Oh, they're definitely cautious uh, for their safety as well, right? Because, again, all these things happen uh, for, for no reason, right? So they have no idea what might happen. Um, but, of course, you know, if there's any way they can help, they absolutely will. But, unfortunately, there is no way, you know, until we find that. There there really is no saying anything about that. And no, you know, after traveling to and fro with the family for decades, no reason at all why you thought you could think that why this would be happening? Nope, not one reason at all. Even the lawyer is completely shocked by the situation. He even says, you know, I asked him, like, like you know, what what are the, like, the questioning, what's it about? He's like, it's literally about nothing. It's about, you know, anything and everything, just about him. Who is he, you know, even asking questions since he was younger? Like, you know, it's just absolutely, you know, they have nothing uh, tangible whatsoever. And it's just clearly just, uh, you know, uh, it's it's ridiculous. Was your father born there? Yes, he was. So originally uh, a citizen there, then a citizen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, could that play into this in any way? I don't see how that could be an issue. No, not lots, at all. Lots of people do that. Exactly. I mean, everyone, practically everyone has a dual citizenship these days, right? Right, it's right. It's never been an issue. So, so what's your, what happens now? How do you move forward with this? 
Honestly, our next steps were just, uh, you know, waiting to see what happens tomorrow. Um, and uh, we just, we, 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 I'm trying my hardest to reach the minister, but it's been very difficult. Uh, you know, we need our intervention because that's the only way we can bring him safely back home. So my next steps is really trying to escalate this as high up in the government as we can, um, you know, before anything worse happens, before any fabricated charges happen, et cetera. Uh, what about any other business associates uh, of your father? Uh, how do they feel about this? Is there any light they can shed on any of this? Any, sorry, what? Any any business associates of your father, any any of the people that he was doing business with over there, is there any, any light they can shed on any of this? No, not at all. They have no idea either. Um, but we have obviously, you know, his clients here in Canada have heard the news and they've, you know, we obviously know my father for years now and they've expressed such great concern and worry for our family. So we're very appreciative of that as well. So at this point, I guess you're just waiting to see what the government can do for you and in uh, and consular services and such, and, and how you can find out more information uh, of just simply what's going on over there. Exactly. Well, I'm. I'm I, I hate. You know. I. No one likes to wait, right? But yeah. unfortunately, like we haven't gotten the that intervention that we're looking for. Any family members from here thinking of going over to help him, or do you have enough family members there to help him? Well, the family members there can't even reach him, right? So right. going there would be useless. And obviously, at this point, we fear for our safety if we go. So sure. I, I, I don't think that's an option. How does this, yeah, I mean, think about this. I mean, your family's been traveling to and fro forever. How do you, mm-hmm. do, th- how do, you do that again, even if this does get cleared up? We have no idea. We didn't even think that far. You know, my, yeah. my grandma, my grandpa, my like, you know, they're all in Egypt. And to, to me, I'm like, well, am I never going to see them again? You know, that, mm. and then I'm, I'm not even trying to think about that right now. Right now, I think my safety, my father's safety is my number one concern. But definitely, this is definitely going to have a huge ripple effect of our lives. So the last time you heard from him was through his lawyer there? Uh, through his lawyer, yes. And but no one's heard anything since he's been transported to the prison on Saturday. So no one knows what his conditions are like there. So his lawyer hasn't visited him in that prison yet? No, he, uh, I don't believe he's allowed. And what would his next move be there, trying to uh, get a visit with him there? He's not allowed to visit him in prison? Usually, no. Torah Prison is notorious for denying, uh, you know, family and lawyer visits. So, um, again, because the questioning is tomorrow, maybe that they're like, oh, they're going to see him tomorrow anyway. I I have no idea. I do not have any information about that. Is it unusual for him, you know, I've heard a little bit about this prison. Is it unusual Mm -hmm. for him to end up in a place like this at this stage of the ordeal? I have no idea, but, you know, this is the worst prison in Egypt, so yeah. this is very concerning, right? It's like, why why would he go there? Yeah, you know, there were reports that saying he was detained in the airport for the while, but this is not confirmed whatsoever. We have no idea where he was that week. Um, but, you know, the fact that he were to go into that prison with no charges just absolutely makes no sense, right? Um, it's just, it, there's clearly something wrong. Wow. Do you have a website or, or a social media page or anything anybody can go to to find out more on this you want to pub- uh, publicize? Sure. I, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, you know, definitely raising awareness about this. Uh, it's Amal Ahmed Elbaz on Facebook. You can definitely keep up with uh, the latest updates there. Amal Elbaz, has with, uh, Amal Elbaz has been with us, daughter of Yasser Elbaz, who is in a Cairo prison. The family here back in Oakville desperately trying to make contact with him and find out what the heck is going on and why he has been detained there while trying to board a plane to come back home to uh, Oakville. Amal, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this. We'll be following and anything else we can do, feel free to call. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.